Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Reset. This is episode three of our series, Closing the Gap, where we explore disparities in the Chicago area and talk with people working to close those gaps. We've been looking at the stark life expectancy gap between some of Chicago's richest and poorest residents. A study last summer showed Chicagoans in one section of Streeterville lived to be 90 years old on average, while residents in a part of Inglewood, nine miles to the south, lived to be just 60. That 30-year gap is the largest, not just in the city, but in the nation. For this, part three of the series, I sat down with Maureen Benjamins. She's a senior research fellow at Sinai Urban Health Institute. That's the research arm of Sinai Health System on Chicago's west and southwest sides. Also with us is Dr. Marshall Chen. Dr. Chen is a general internist at the University of Chicago Medical Center. I started the conversation by getting their reactions to this 30-year gap. It's not really surprising. We've known for a long time that Chicago is one of the most racially segregated cities in the country. So it makes sense that the health outcomes um, are so disparate as well. Dr. Chin, your thoughts? These disparities are terrible, but unfortunately, we're not unique. Many other cities in regions of the country have these same types of disparities. Now, Maureen, how much of this life expectancy gap is tied to access to health care? Well, a lot of models that look at the predictors and how you can kind of categorize predictors of health say that healthcare um, accounts for about 20% of health outcomes. The rest of that can be determined by social factors, economic factors, the environment in which you live, all of those kind of broader influences on health. Can you give us an understanding of, of the existing health disparities in Chicago, what, what they look like more broadly? Sure. So if you looked at some of the factors that influence health, things like poverty and education, unemployment, those vary the same way that the health outcomes vary. In other words, when you look at Chicago, the poor health outcomes are seen on the west and the south sides of the city. That's the same place where you see the highest levels of poverty, for example, highest levels of people without a high school degree. So they really overlap quite a bit. Dr. Chen, I want to hear from you because as both a researcher and a healthcare provider at UFC, you come in contact with patients in addition to doing your research. And I'm curious what you've observed about this life expectancy gap and some of the health disparities we see in the city. What's causing it? As Maureen said, the social factors are an important driver like poverty, unemployment. At the same time, we have a healthcare system that is not well designed to meet the health needs of individual patients and communities. We tend to favor high technology specialty care over prevention and primary care. And also, the way we pay for care often does not support or incentivize the type of care that can reduce these disparities in health outcomes. Frankly, we just don't prioritize reducing health disparities. Why do you think our medical system works that way? What's, what's driving that approach? One of the keys to reducing disparities is intentionality. In other words, intentionally designing healthcare systems and the way we pay for care to reduce these differences in health outcomes and life expectancy. We just don't do that. That, frankly, we as a society 
haven't said that we will not tolerate these health disparities. And so we have a system where, for example, high-tech procedures, high-tech specialty care is rewarded financially, much less money and support for many of the types of interventions that we know can reduce disparities, team-based care, the use of community health workers that can bridge the worlds of the healthcare system and the community for patients, or addressing the social factors. So, for example, there's a lot of interest right now in housing. Homeless patients, if they're discharged from the hospital without a place to stay, will just bounce right back to the hospital. So some states are being more innovative in terms of, of allowing healthcare funds to be used for both health purposes as well as the social factors that drive health outcomes. So what I hear you saying there, Dr. Chin, is that high-tech medicine, treating diseases, treating illnesses, is more financially beneficial than preventative care? Is that an accurate summation of what you said? Right. So in general, when you look at the way that healthcare is paid for in this country, what is rewarded are the high-tech procedures, surgeries, and all. And so that becomes the incentive for healthcare systems to design their product and brand lines about trying to increase their market share for these profitable types of care, as opposed to investing in prevention, mental health, substance use treatment, or addressing the type of social factors that Maureen mentioned. Uh, Maureen, you conducted a health survey, a community health survey recently um, that looked at nine communities on the west and southwest sides of Chicago. What did you find? Sure. So that was the Sinai Community Health Survey, and we looked at all types of health outcomes and the social factors that can help predict them. Um, We asked over 500 questions. So we know a lot about things um, ranging from food insecurity to um, intimate partner violence, police encounters, all types of factors that we know can help explain why our neighborhoods have all these disparities. And you also found recently that a lot of adults over 40%, I believe, uh, reported that they've been discriminated against across medical settings and from all types of staff. Talk about that number for us. Yes, we ask a lot of questions about discrimination and racism, knowing that that drives some of these outcomes. Um, We found that in these predominantly minority communities, um, 40% reported that in a medical setting, they'd been discriminated against. So a doctor had treated them with less respect than someone else. A doctor had asked, acted as as if he or she was afraid of you or didn't want to touch you. Um, And that, as you can imagine, is related to a host of outcomes in terms of not wanting to utilize health care in the future, um, having poor relations with your provider, all of that. So these levels are very high, we um, much higher than previously seen. What does that tell you about the need for more education and training and cultural competency in medicine? It definitely needs to happen. We also asked who was the perpetrator of that discrimination, and it was across the board. So I said doctors earlier, but it wasn't just doctors. It was nurses. It was the front office staff. Um, so healthcare systems really need to be aware of that, provide training um, on the job, and the schools that educate healthcare providers need to be talking about privilege and racism and all these concepts that uh, they're perhaps not comfortable talking about, but definitely need to be part of the conversation. Dr. Chin, when patients have an experience like that, an experience with um, a clinician or other medical staff where they feel that they're being discriminated against, how does that affect 
their ability to access health care that, that they trust. Really, the heart of clinical care is that relationship between the clinician and the patient. And as you mentioned, Jane, trust is critical. Unless there's trust, there's not going to be the, the free exchange information back and forth. And critical to good health care is understanding a patient's beliefs, their values, their preferences regarding their care. So that type of trust and communication is critical. At the same time, though, I think it's important to note that it's not just an issue of cultural competency. Clearly, we need to have great cultural competency training, but there are concrete structural things we can do to design our healthcare systems to better deliver tailored care, as well as specific changes we can make to the way we pay for care to incentivize the reduction of health disparities. What do you think the city of Chicago can do to help reduce some of the some of these disparities in, in health care when we look at it from a policy perspective? As Maureen mentioned earlier, the social factors driving health outcomes are, are quite powerful. And one of the forefront areas in policy is how can we integrate the healthcare system with the various social community-based organizations and social agencies to, in a holistic way, address each individual patient's health and social needs. The city can be a, a, a very important convener of these different components, the healthcare sector, the housing sector, employment, community development, transportation. So it's a very important role the city of Chicago can play in addressing these specific barriers. Maureen, how else can healthcare providers, community organizations, um, clinics that, that find their home within neighborhoods, how can they work towards closing this gap? Well, beyond the policy that Dr. Chen just talked about, um, individual providers can do things like utilize community health workers, which he mentioned as well. That's something that Sinai does a lot. People from the community train to help individuals access care, um, get the social services they need. Um, They assess their home environment so that we really understand that it's not just what happens in the clinic or healthcare system, but often it's what's happening in a patient's home that influences their health outcomes. Maureen, when you look across Chicago, are there organizations or new initiatives that are working well? to close these health disparities? Well, one big step is that healthcare systems are getting more involved in addressing the social factors. So Westside United, which I know you talked about on an earlier segment, um, also systems like Sinai Health System has the Sinai Community Institute where they offer social service programs. So everything from um, job training to family case management to elder abuse prevention, um, everything that acknowledges that we, we have to take care of a patient in a community and take care of a community, not just those we're seeing inside the hospital. Dr. Chen, what about you? I'll give a couple of examples, Jen. Right now, I'm in Portland, Oregon, doing a site visit to a number of clinics that have placed within their clinic uh, a desk of, for a social service agency. And what they do in the clinic is they screen their patients for individual social needs, like if they're homeless or have a transportation need. And then the workers at this referral desk will then link them to relevant community resources in the neighborhoods in their area. That's Dr. Marshall Chin, a general internist at UChicago Medicine. Also with us, Maureen Benjamins, Senior Research Fellow at Sinai Urban Health Institute. Dr. Chen, Maureen, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you, Jen. Now, I want to bring another voice into this conversation to talk about solutions to help close the life expectancy gap in Chicago. Joining us now in studio is Donna Thompson, Chief Executive Officer of Access Community Health Network. Access runs 35 community health centers throughout Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. Donna, welcome to Reset. Thank you so much, Jen. So before we talk solutions, I just wanted to get your reaction to this report that that talks about this 30-year life expectancy gap here in Chicago. Well, you know, Jen having a pleasure of being the CEO of Access, and we have a a patient population of 175,000 people. But really, for the last 40-plus years, I'm also a nurse. Mm -hmm. And I can remember from the bedside so many people suffering in silence. Um, You know, when they talk about the need for trust, that is an issue that we have to really focus in on because it really is about engagement. We also know that even post-Affordable Care Act, emergency department utilization is still high. And most of the people who are coming in, it really is ambulatory sensitive conditions that could be addressed in a healthcare home. You know, it's interesting that when we look at issues like social determinants, I encourage my staff, even for us in primary care, to look beyond the walls, to start looking at issues that even if we talk about diabetes management, heart disease and asthma, but are we equally talking about transportation needs, food insecurity and even housing? And, you know, it's interesting in healthcare because we're so guided by really talking about the pathology that having a conversation around someone to see if they're really food insecure and what that would be like, but also having the resources. You know, more and more, it really is about engagement of partnerships. Over the last year, we've partnered with groups like Gateway, Trilogy, Sinai Health System, and really getting everyone to document in one single record so that every touch point that was given to that patient, the team would really know what the needs were and what's being addressed. Over and over in these conversations, I keep hearing this focus on the need to change the kind of relationship clinicians have with patients, to find a new way of engaging with them, to talk more holistically. Mm -hmm. But how does that happen? One of the ways that we really started focusing in on was we partnered with Dartmouth University around a model called shared decision making. Now, the essence of it is really to be a more active listener, but also to give patients options. Uh, We know that in many communities where someone on a beautiful day might not feel comfortable exercising in the park, but when you tell someone you need to exercise more, it really is going on a journey with them on really laying out all options so that patients, one, can feel the power of making decisions for themselves and really to change from power over more power with and taking the journey together as a healthcare team with the patient and the family. Talk a little bit more about what you're doing at Access Community Health Network to close these gaps we see in health outcomes. Absolutely. Well, you know, structurally, um, five years ago, we really started looking at how we were serving patients. Um, Many times patients would come. They might have very long wait times. 
when they wanted to get seen, many times it might be a visit two to three, four weeks out. And so we really started using a lean methodology to really look at three major areas. Um, Our no-show rates, it's hard to engage someone if they're not showing up for appointments, how quickly we could get someone in for an appointment, and also from the time they came in, the cycle time to complete the appointment. You know, I always say one way to show respect is to respect someone's time. And so, you know, we had to get over also, well, sometimes our patients don't show up on time or they don't show up um, on the right day. Um, So we invested in a contact center so that we could reach out to our patients, remind them, text them, and recently even adding transportation so that that will never be a barrier to care. We made phenomenal um, improvements. Some of the cycle time was up to 110 minutes. Now we're on average 38 minutes, not taking any time away from that provider. Third next available appointments, the ability to get in when you need to be seen and want to be seen, that's about three days for OB and two days for primary care. And no-show rate is down to 17%. Um, And again, that started up uh, higher than 40%. Now, as we look at how are we going to engage, it's also taking our data to actually understand when our patients come in, yes, they might come in for what they think they want, and we want to address that, but if you're also in need of a women's health visit or if it's time for your colorectal screening, using that time to educate our patients on preventive measures. Many times in our communities, people are diagnosed, but usually it's late onset. And we know then what that does to the community, what it does to faith, what it does to a community that can be able to rebound and say, I don't have to have the same fate as my relatives um, around diabetes or any other type of chronic disease. Just as we wrap up here, I'd love to hear your thoughts briefly on policy, maybe that needs to shift. Mm Mm-hmm. And I agree with Dr. Chin. Um, Structurally, we need to look at payment reform and put more emphasis on preventive. But we also need to look at some of the other barriers. Transportation is a huge barrier. You know, I often tell people that on a beautiful day in Chicago, someone might not feel comfortable even standing on a corner waiting for a bus. Or a mom with two or three children that, again, how is she going to navigate to get them to a provider appointment? But again, when we look at policy, there's got to be more incentives around prevention and engagement with our patients and communities. That's Donna Thompson, Chief Executive Officer of Access Community Health Network. Donna, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Jen. And that's part three of our first Closing the Gap series. We'll finish off the series over the next several Sundays. Until then, I'm Jen White. Have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks for listening. And let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.